Today, um, we're at what is now known as Cascade Ranch, but during pre-contact times, this was the tribal territory of the Kiroste people, and the Kiroste were part of the larger Awaswas nation, which was the greater Santa Cruz area. My name is Valentin Lopez. I'm the chairman of the Amamutsun Tribal Band. And our tribe is comprised of the descendants of the indigenous peoples taken to missions San Juan Batista and Santa Cruz. The most important resource we have is the, um, the resource left to us by Ascension Solorizano. Ascension was born in 1855 and um, in when she was six years old, she had a near-death experience. And as a result of that, she was recognized as a doctora, or a healer. And her formal training started at age 11. And she became our tribal leader. And as in that position, she had the responsibility to learn our oral histories, our stories, our places of power, our ceremonies all the knowledge that had been accumulated for those thousands and thousands of years. And then just before the turn of the century in 1900, um, she had a dream or a vision that somebody was gonna come and talk to her and she needed to tell that person everything she knew. And she waited and waited and nobody came. And during this time, she became a really well-respected healer and these doctors, white doctors with white patients <laughs> would come down from San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, Mexico, even came from Nebraska, believe it or not, who knew of her reputation as a healer. And, uh, and she would, you know, diagnose them and, and give them, um, you know, and, and tell them what they needed to do, what medicines they needed, etc. And um, there was a lot of articles written about her um, in the San Francisco Chronicle and many other papers about this extraordinary woman. Um, in 1929, she was diagnosed with cancer. And she's at home and um, knowing that she's gonna die very soon. And there's a knock on the door and she opens the door and looks at it and there's a man in a suit with his hat in his hand. You know, and then she gets a big smile on her face and her eyes get wide open. And she says, there you are, I've been waiting for you, please come in. And that was J.P. Harrington from the Smithsonian Institute. He had been sent from the, um, to the western part of the United States to talk to the last of the native elders who were quickly dying away to try and write down and capture as much of that knowledge that they had before they passed because they knew once they passed, that knowledge would be lost forever. Well, he ended up moving in with Ascension, and they worked every day up until the time of her death. And in those eight or nine months, they recorded over 78,000 pages of anthropological field notes. And as a result of that, we are confident that we are going to be able to restore 90 to 95 percent of our indigenous knowledge. And it's that knowledge that's going to allow us to return to the path of our ancestors and fulfill our obligation to Creator. From those 78,000 transcribed pages, the Amamutsin are reconstructing their history and recovering traditional knowledge that was almost lost when waves of colonial settlers, first the Spanish, then white Americans, enslaved and murdered hundreds of thousands of native Californians.
The story of the Amamutsen tribal band and their stewardship of the land along California's central coast is a crucial part of the history of how humans have interacted with this landscape. And their stewardship practices literally laid the groundwork for the existing farming industry here. It turns out that this story not only stretches the standard timeline of California history way back by thousands of years, but it also asks us to expand our very definition of agriculture, which is why it feels like a critically important place to dig in. I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins, and this is the Calag Roots Podcast. As you know, Calag Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming in order to shed some light on current issues in agriculture. You can always check us out on our website at www.agroots.org, and you'll want to be sure to subscribe this fall if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, because this story is actually the first in a little flurry of stories we're going to be releasing. I've had the privilege of working with three wonderful new Calag Roots story co-producers from around rural California who are going to be bringing their voices and their stories to the air uh, through our podcast this fall. There's three of those. And then I'm also working with the wonderful Susan Anderson, a historian at the California Historical Society, and a postdoc researcher, Caroline Collins, on a story series called We Are Not Strangers Here, about African-American histories in rural California. And that is going to be released in the late winter, early spring of 2020. So please stay tuned. We've got a lot of good stuff coming out. I hope you enjoy it. While the Amawutsen are in a process of remembering their history, This story demands that the rest of us do at least as much unlearning what we've been taught as learning about the long history of indigenous people here. I'm from the ancestral Amamutsen territory in the Santa Cruz Mountains. I've lived and worked with farmers, environmentalists, activists, and historians here for decades. And my knowledge of what happened on this land before Spanish contact was virtually non-existent. It turns out I didn't even have the right language to ask questions as I stumbled through this story. There are three huge misconceptions that are widely held and that are taught over and over in California fourth grade history, which honestly, for many Californians, is the only time we learn about California Native people at all. The first of those misconceptions is that California was only lightly populated before the Spanish and then American settlers. Here's Chairman Lopez again to set the record straight. Prior to contact, the, the, the Native Americans estimate our population at over a million people here in California. And then those early explorers, when they came in, the Vizcano, the Balboa, the Cabrillo, whenever they came in, they brought disease. And that killed about 650,000 Indians. And so at first contact, when Spain came in over land um, in 1769, uh, the population of California Indians was estimated at 350,000. It had been reduced by that amount. Also, um, the central coast of California here um, was the most populated area of indigenous people north of Mexico City. In, you know, north of Mexico City, that means the rest of Mexico, all of the United States, Canada, etc. The central coast of California was the most populated of indigenous people. And you can understand why. Because here we have the oceans, we have the rivers, we have the lakes, the creeks, the streams. 
Well, first it's important to describe, you know, California was incredibly diverse at the time of contact, and there were dozens of autonomously functioning tribes here uh, on the central coast. And so the Amamunsen today are the descendants of uh, those tribal groups, the Awaswas and Munson-speaking people, uh, who were taken to Mission Santa Cruz and Mission San Juan Batista during colonization. So today their territory extends from Ano Nuevo, um, south into Watsonville, uh, down into Pinnacles National Park. So it basically encompasses, you know, Santa Cruz, Aptos, Soquel, Watsonville, Hollister, Gilroy. So my name is Rick Flores. I'm the director of horticulture and steward of the Alma Munson Relearning Program at the UC Santa Cruz Arboretum and Botanic Garden. And I'm also a research associate for the Alma Munson Land Trust. So the reason that we hang on to the myth of California as an open, unpopulated place pre-contact has less to do with what settlers actually found than with suppressed histories of genocide here. It may be true that later waves of settlers found few native people here because they had already been violently ripped from their homelands. This history stands in sharp contrast to what's depicted on signs at Spanish-era missions across the state. An Amamutsen elder named Eleanor Castro told me urgently, people need to know. We were slaves. They made us into slaves. They took away our land. They took away our, our way of dressing. We had to wear their, you know, their uh, woolen clothes. And the women were separated from their children and from their men. And, um, you know, just brutalized. Uh, if you try to escape, they'd bring you back and, and whip you and almost tell you're dead if not dead you know just so many stories that it's just so sad and 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 it hurts my heart to even talk about it because uh, those are my people you know they're my ancestors the second major misconception we have about native life in california is that before there was farming it was hard to get enough food to survive. Life pre-agriculture, we imagine, was unpredictable, and tribes had to search long and hard for anything to eat. We lived by the seashore, and a lot of our food came from the sea. Um, you know, the animals were, you know, because the, the, the land was abundant, the animals had plenty of food, so that fed us, you know. When those early Spanish explorers came by on their ships before first, before they came out to the land, they all wrote about the coast, what they saw here in the mountains. And they wrote that the mountains were a mosaic of different plants and different colors. And they referred it to it as a park-like setting. And they called it just beautiful. Now, they thought that that just happened accidentally or randomly. They did not realize that that right there was, at, you know, the result of of hundreds and perhaps thousands of years of intentional management to take care of that way. And that that right there was actually, you know, a, a way of sustaining and providing for, uh, for the foods, for the medicines, for the basketry, for the housing, for the clothing, for all that was needed by the native people and by all animals and by all living things. That's the way they did it. The Amamutsen were eating really well before Spanish contact. Chairman Lopez pointed out that this wasn't hunting and gathering as we learn about it in our fourth grade classrooms. It was land management. 
As someone telling stories of California history, I know firsthand that we often trace that history back to colonizers and stop there. Wrong again, of course. It absolutely drives me crazy that California history, whether it be taught in schools or whether it be acknowledged in the state legislature, always kind of starts around the gold rush. And to me, that's like a deliberate elimination of this entire group of people in California. I am Ade Romero Briones, and I am from the Pueblo of Cochiti and Kiowa Tribe of Oklahoma, and I work for First Nations Development Institute as the director of the Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative, and I am married into the Big Valley Rancheria in Lakeport, California. So starting the story of any aspect of California history at the Gold Rush or even a hundred years before, at the time of the Spanish colonization, clearly misses a lot. Here's Eleanor Castro again. The Spanish came, you know, they thought we were lazy and, you know, we were just, you know, we didn't work for our food. And it's their mind, their mindset was not like our mindset. And, you know, they were, you know, they were more powerful and, you know, controlling over us and, know getting rid of us and never even tried to understand us you know if you're not like us then you're you know you're you're nothing but the sad part is they didn't learn from us at that time you know they didn't even have the idea of learning from us and mainstream california culture and politics has really kept those same blinders on for hundreds of years our people were here for 15,000 years or more And if you think of that in terms of generations, that's 800, 900, perhaps a thousand generations or more. And they, um, you know, and they um, learn how to develop relationships with the land, with the air, with the water, with the mountains, with the trees. They had relationships with them and they knew how to listen to them, to understand them and how to provide for them and what their needs were. And as they accumulated knowledge, generation after generation after generation, that knowledge was passed down. Can you imagine how much knowledge was accumulated over 800 or 1,000 generations? And then whenever the missions and Spain came, and then that was followed by the Mexican period, and that was followed by the California um, American period, and they just wanted to destroy our spirituality, our culture, our environments, our indigenous knowledge, and our humanity. Think of what was lost as far as knowledge of how to take care of Mother Earth and all living things. And that's where our tribe is today. So Calag Roots is obviously a podcast about farming history. I wondered at the outset of this story if this 900 generations of knowledge is a part of that history. The Amamutsun have definitely been eating well by tending the wild, as ethnobotanist and UC researcher Kat Anderson has called it. But were the Amamutsun farming in some form? Asking that question got some really complicated answers. You know, I study agriculture, and so like, There is this timeline that's often described in agriculture um, where it's like 
people were hunting and gathering and then they became civilized and became more agriculturalists and from agriculturalists they became industrialists and so within that timeline like no matter where you put on that on that timeline it's sort of it's going to be offensive to indigenous peoples the invention of agriculture is described in western history books as a really key moment for human societies Embedded right there in the word agriculture is the concept of culture. That's how central to our identity farming has been. And because people often define themselves by what we think we're not, our understanding of agriculture is interwoven with another complicated concept, the idea of wilderness. It's an intentional um, elimination of that people because if you include it, you're going to have to kind of deal with the... I guess, atrocities that led up to agriculture. Like there's a reason why someone could have 80 acres and a farm field, right? It's because the indigenous people were eliminated from that land or that land was considered wild when in fact it was probably being tended by indigenous people. And so when they talk about agriculture, like as the start of American society, it doesn't, it deliberately doesn't include indigenous people for those reasons. On the central coast of California, the land grants that took away native land were much larger, measuring in the tens of thousands of acres. When Spanish and then later American colonizers streamed into California, they used their ideas of what counted as culture and civilization and what was wild and animal as tools of destruction against native communities. What we have here in this country now is this idea of wilderness, um, which in my mind is, you know, uh, a bit of an erasure of indigenous history on the landscape because when you look at the definition of wilderness under the Wilderness Act, you know, it says a wilderness is a place where man is just a visitor um, and so, the, you know, it's an area that is untrammeled by man. Well, you know, we obviously know that indigenous people were not mere visitors and we now know that they were astute and sophisticated land managers as well. Uh, and so one of the unfortunate things is that in the early conservation movement here in North America, um, this idea of wilderness was brought to us by people like John Muir, and he used it to, to be able to set aside, you know, our national parks and stuff like that, which is a good thing. Um, but but what was untold in that story is that, you know, we, California was never really a wilderness for thousands of years, as long as the indigenous people were stewarding and managing land. According to the people I talked to, the kind of land stewardship practiced by the Amamutsin was really sophisticated, but it wasn't read that way by waves of colonizers, in part because it was based on a fundamentally different relationship with plants and animals than is expressed in modern agriculture. Or maybe it's not just modern, Maybe it's something that has never been a part of what people mean when we use the word farming. Back to Chairman Lopez. We do not consider what we did agriculture. Agriculture uh, um, implies that you're domesticating the plants, you're domesticating the animals, you're um, managing and you're altering the, um, the waters for irrigation and stuff like that. And for us, you know, that's that that's that you know, our people did not believe in altering, scarring, changing Mother Earth. Um, the way that 
creator made Mother Earth was perfect. It was sacred and was perfect. And how dare you change that? How dare you change that? Every plant has the responsibility to provide for a, a community. And that in community uh, included the fungi, the insects, the four-legged, um, the birds, and people. Amamutsen elder Eleanor Castro told me that this worldview has a name. If you ever see hear a Native uh, person say, in all my relations, well, that's what it means. Mm. That, you know, we're connected to everything. Ade Romero-Briones described something similar. I think that relationship with nature is one that is more familial than it is manipulative, which could be a way to describe like agriculture, right? In agriculture, you're definitely manipulating nature in a way that would force it to grow the way the human subject wants it to grow, in the places human people want it to grow, and at the times they want it to grow, and now you have this excessive manipulation. And But when you think of indigenous people and their relationship to environment and the land, um, it's more of like a conversation, right? You're, con- yeah. you're conversing, you're asking it to grow at certain times because it benefits the community, knowing that the community is definitely tied to that growth. And so our growth is tied to that natural cycle of that plant, that, that system. So it's a little out, it's not as manipulative as like agricultural practices, but it's not quite wild either. So I, so I often refer to it as incipient domesticate, but you know, that's a, that's a long word. This concept, the idea of incipient domesticates that Ade introduced me to, feels really important. It almost opens up an alternate universe of food production one that's outside of that standard textbook timeline of human development that moves food crops from wild plants and animals to domesticated ones. The stage just before you have like domesticated crops and the stage right after like just wild growth, there's a stage like where you have incipient domesticates where you're actually like taking some of the more beneficial plants and natural processes and you're actually tending them in ways that would be more beneficial to both the human cousin and the plant cousin. It became really clear to me that indigenous people tend to see things differently when it comes to agriculture. The Amamutsin then have been in a fundamentally different relationship with nature as they produce food. As Rick Flores put it, calling indigenous Californians farmers or even suggesting that they were on their way to developing some kind of agrarian society, is to deny them the uniqueness of their culture. Here on the Central Coast, Rick pointed out, because of their land management practices, it was incredibly diverse. And there was no need to farm. Still, their history on this land clearly deserves to be understood as we tell the story of California agriculture. In fact, some of the richest coastal agricultural lands that are being farmed today were kept open by Amamutsin stewardship practices. Uh, They were coppicing, which means cutting plants to the ground, uh, pruning, 
selective harvesting, uh, seed scattering, uh, but without doubt the use of fire was probably the most effective uh, management tool that uh, California Indians in this area and the ancestors of the Amamunsan tribal band uh, employed to manage landscapes and ecosystems. I asked Rick how they would use fire to do that. Well, there's a lot of really interesting research. Um, you know, when we think of fire today, we think of these large, catastrophic, high-intensity wildfires, but indigenous burning was very different. Um, they burned in systematic fashion. Uh, they often burned uh, in the late fall through early spring when the weather was cool and the ground was damp. Uh, and because they were burning at such regular intervals, um, there wasn't a lot of fuel on the ground. So what you got were these low-intensity, slow-moving fires through the landscape that would ultimately just burn themselves out because they would hit a patch of land where there wasn't just enough fuel to keep carrying that fire. This careful tending of plant and animal communities laid the groundwork for farming in the most literal way possible. On the central coast, this has meant that... If you look at thousands of years of burning practices, uh, that certainly would have created an open landscape as well as fertile soils, you know, because all those nutrients from a fire get recycled into the soil. So uh, it's no surprise that many of the farms here on the central coast are, you know, found on historically coastal prairie ecosystems. You know, I don't know that farmers go into thickets of dug fir forests and then try to clear out the dug fir forest to, <laughs> to, you know, start their farms. They're looking for open grassland landscapes. According to Chairman Lopez, this also created the plant stock that saved important agricultural industries in moments of crisis. In the 1960s, uh, there was a vineyard epidemic, and it affected pretty much the whole world. And they um, found that the rootstock from the California grape was resistant to that disease. And so today, the vineyards around the world have the rootstock from the California grape. And, you know, and that's just because of the way our ancestors stewarded that plant for those thousands of years. And the same is true for many of the nut crops around the world. The same is true for strawberry plants around the world. We've been talking about historical Amamuts and stewardship practices, but it's critical to point out that in spite of the history of genocide in the state, indigenous land tending has never been fully suppressed. I think of the Central Valley, and I just came from this event called the California Indian Basket Weavers Association. And the large majority of those people come from places from Sacramento to Bakersfield. But when you look on the maps, there's no indigenous people like along that corridor. And all the people at this gathering were from that corridor. And I was like, you're, you're literally the people California history leaves out. One lady told me, you know, we, when we were pushed off our land, we became the migrant farm workers. And people just thought we were Mexican, but we're, we're, we're actually the people who are, have tended this land since we can remember. And on the Central Coast, this stewardship continues. Even though not a single member of the Amamutsan tribal band lives in the area, 
due to the incredibly high cost of living here. The majority of our people, including myself, can't even afford to live within our territory. Rick Flores commented on this also. One thing that's important to note about the Amamunsen is that in the 19, early 1900s, there was a large diaspora out of this area. And so a lot of tribal members at that time moved out into the Central Valley uh, where they found work on ranches and farms. Uh, some of them did sheep shearing for seasonal work. Uh, and now they're, um, they're priced out of living here in their traditional territory. Uh, they don't have the economic means to move back. So um, the, the work of the land trust and the tribe is to uh, begin to, to bring back, you know, the tribe to their traditional territory so they can begin again to create relationships with the native plants and the ecosystems and the landscapes uh, that are here on the central coast. The Almamutsen formed a land trust in 2012. A land trust without an inch of land, Chairman Lopez points out. After the tribal elders directed him to find a way to gain access to traditional lands. Living hours outside of their homelands and disconnected from their traditional land management knowledge, this wasn't an easy task. I mean, it was a directive. We have to find a way to get back. And so what we do, we did what our people always do. We prayed, and we asked Creator to help us find a path. And it wasn't long after that that we got a call from the superintendent of Pinnacles National Park inviting us to come on in and saying that he had just transferred in from another park, and he had a great relationship with the indigenous tribe there, and he wanted the same thing at Pinnacles. This was the beginning of a process that would eventually allow the tribal band to steward the land again. Today we have access to over 140,000 acres within our territory. We have MOUs for most of them that allow us to have ceremony, do traditional gathering, um, to have, um, to do education for our tribal members, uh, for the public, to do research. Um, and, and many other things, you know, and, and, and ongoing stewardship as well. And to this day, we are a land trust with no land. <laughs> but we say that our ancestors did not own the land. The land belongs to the Creator. Well, currently what they're doing is they're working to restore the coastal prairie that existed here before first contact times. A lot of people who look at the landscapes of the Santa Cruz, um, uh, uh, coast now and stuff like that. They see a lot of trees and a lot of brush and shrubs and stuff like that. But that's not the way it was during pre-contact times. During pre-contact times, this right here was a very um, a, a important and productive um, coastal prairie. Eleanor Castro drives three hours every two weeks from the Central Valley to the coast with a group of Amamutsin land stewards. As they do restoration and stewardship work, she prepares meals, does beadwork, offers blessings. That's actually bringing back our culture. Mm -hmm. You know, in our culture, you know, family is, is important. And, um, you know, having the elders lead you is important. And, you know, I don't know everything, so I can't teach them everything. But what I, you know, I, what I've learned, I pass on to them so that they can pass it on to their children. The stewards go out on the Sunday evening and start work on the next day on Monday. I go out on Monday morning uh, and um, sometimes I go out in the field with them. I don't do the work, but I do blessings. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we, we talk about, um, you know, the plants and, you know, what they're going to do, you know, how, why and how they clear the land. The crew sometimes camps and sometimes stays in a house at Cascade Ranch on the northern coast near the town of Pescadero, right next to a farm founded by two longtime food and farming movement activists, Nancy Vale and Jared Lawson. We had been wondering for a long time when we first arrived here on this land, whose land are we on? And it wasn't until meeting Val that we learned about the Amamutsun Tribal Band. Um, invited him, we walked the land together a couple times and had conversations with him about what the tribe is currently doing to reconnect and heal from historic trauma through these partnerships that they've been building over time with Pinnacles National Park, with UC Santa Cruz. So my name is Nancy Vale, and I'm co-founder and co-director here at Pi Ranch on the Central Coast in the ancestral homeland of the Amamutsun Tribal Band. And we have a mission to cultivate a healthy and just food system from seed to table. And we do that through food education, farmer training, and building regional partnerships. Working with members of the Amamutsun Tribal Band, Pi Ranch built a large circular garden with pie-shaped pieces of plant groups that are significant to the Amamutsun. There's crafting plants, there's grassland foods, health plants, and nuts and berries that are represented in the garden. And in the middle of the garden is a tule hut, which demonstrates how the people that lived in this area for 10,000 years or more used to uh, build their structures. Pie Ranch does a lot of things that are common practices among alternative farms, part of the California food movement. They host farm field trips for kids, they teach beginning farmers, they sell produce to corporate cafeterias, and yes, they also offer pie at a roadside farm stand. But they also do something much rarer. Nancy sees their work with the Almamutsen as central to the mission of the farm. The work of Pie Ranch, it's about leveraging privilege and power where possible to be in solidarity. Um, we have the opportunity to go into our own minds and hearts of and looking around and imagining how the land was tended and who were the people here, that there were mothers giving birth, that there were people laughing here and people gathering and eating food together and sleeping on the land and dying and grieving and all the things that we do these people were doing and so I think some of it is this imagination of like remembering that and that these are human beings just like us that they're not less than us that we're not better than them that we haven't figured out something better necessarily because I think what we're taught is that uh, indigenous people were uncivilized and that somehow we've got it figured out now of how to live in the world. Since she's been through a process of unlearning what we're taught in California classrooms, Nancy and Pie Ranch can start to point the way for a new type of partnership between indigenous communities and farmers. So um, I think indigenous knowledge uh, gives us an opportunity to return uh, to a more healthful way of relating to the land and each other and ourselves. And if we can weave in that knowledge with modern organic farming, practices and knowledge that come from a lot of other indigenous communities all around the world. If there's a way of bringing those pieces together, um, I think that's what's really exciting. Ade Romero Briones, 
agrees. When we don't include indigenous practices and indigenous people in our history timelines, there's no way we can recognize any of those practices as beneficial. And so even starting out the gate, those practices are excluded. Imagine if we spent all that energy, like, exploring those practices instead of fighting for, like, inclusion. You know, I have two children who are California native. And, like, I I think there's so much power and beauty that they have to offer this world and to California. But there are like two indigenous children of many and many people. And I don't think you can go one place in California without being on indigenous lands. And if, even if like we don't change the food movement to include indigenous people, at the very least, like California, I think has to acknowledge that indigenous people still exist and have existed in this space for longer than California has existed as a state. And there is a lot of power in that. Climate change becomes an active and present danger. It's clear that California agriculture will need to shift. Partnerships like the one between Pi Ranch and the Amamutsun Land Trust are beginning to experiment with a new farming paradigm. But rewriting what's in the California history books and stretching our imaginations about the very definition of farming are also a key part of this shift. If we can define agriculture in a way that's large enough to embrace indigenous knowledge about the interconnectedness of all living creatures, we just might find our way through this transition together. And maybe, as a day suggests, we should step out of the way and let young people lead us there. Thanks for listening to the CalAg Roots podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can check out other stories like this one at agroots.org or on Apple Podcasts if you subscribe. This story was produced by the California Institute for Rural Studies, and I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins. Special thanks to the team of CalAg Roots co-producers, Jennifer Martinez, Hector Calderon, and Erica Ramirez-Mayaral for editing and production help. And big thanks, of course, go out to everyone whose voices you heard here today. Chairman Valentin Lopez, Ade Romero-Briones, Rick Flores, Eleanor Castro, and Nancy Vale. The music for our podcast and the Calag Roots theme music is by Nangdo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>